0: Welcome to the Banyan Edge Podcast. Here's your host, Charles Sizemore. Welcome. I'm your host, Charles Sizemore. And today, we are getting in your head. We're going to talk about investor psychology, behavioral finance, if you will. And to help me do that, I have brought on my collaborator, Mr. Adam O'Dell, who we did have an office pool going for a while that Adam might actually be a robot because Adam (laughs) seems to be immune to these psychological problems that seem to uh, affect the rest of us in our trading. Mr. Adam here is, uh he's definitely mastered the, uh, the art of uh, being cool and analytical. And mm-hmm. I say that as the highest compliment I can give a trader, Adam. I appreciate that. I'll talk about how nobody's ever able to extinguish their biases, but we learn to overcome them if we're aware. You learn, learn to overcome them. Well, so let's start with, uh, I don't know if you you saw this, but last week, our colleague, Mike Carr, actually wrote a fantastic article about investor biases. I love this. It was a nice introductory piece to just kind of wake you up to the the biases that are affecting your trading. He specifically talked about a, a couple. He mentioned the salience bias, and I think the vocabulary has changed since my days in grad school when I studied under Adam Smith in the 1800s or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right? The uh, <laughs> This is what I would have called the, uh, the representativeness bias or uh, perhaps even the availability bias. But mm-hmm. what, what it, it boils down to is focusing on the wrong thing. The salience bias is our tendency to focus on whatever's big in the news that day. Focus on whatever is uh, you know, getting our attention, but may not necessarily have a real impact on stock prices. It's, it's focusing on the wrong thing. It's something that every investor does. It's something we've all struggled with. How do you get around that yourself? Like, what's what's your approach? Uh, well, I
1: don't have a TV in my office. That's kind of rare for a financial uh, person. Uh, but I, I don't ever watch CNBC. Uh, I try to read um, news selectively. Um, the idea is that yeah, as an investor, you want to feel like you have control over your investments, control over the market. And you feel that the more information you consume and take in, uh, the better off you will be. And that's that's a bias of just thinking that you can uh, you can do that when all, all the research shows that you can't. Um, so you know that's the biggest one of the biggest mistakes I see you know novice new investors make is that you know watching the news, watching CNBC um, and trying to get either tips or get information that they feel is going to be uh, influential in making good decisions. Uh, but most of the time it's just noise. Uh, the the financial markets are a market are basically a, a, an arena where the signal to noise ratio is very low. There's not much signal. There's a whole lot of noise. And if uh, if you think that you're going to get an edge by reading uh, you know articles on CNBC or Yahoo Finance, um that's really you know, you're the patsy at the table, so to speak. So I, I've learned that, you know, over
0: decades and just basically try to tune it out. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And this goes back to the idea of market efficiency and one of the really the entire you know the entire rationale behind behavioral finance was to I won't, I won't say the whole rationale was to disprove the efficient market hypothesis that that's not strictly speaking accurate but for decades the the prevailing wisdom on on wall street and academic circles was that the market is efficient information is already priced in so doing you know extra research doesn't necessarily help it, it's already priced in behavioral finance showed that that's not necessarily true the market may be efficient in the sense that it processes information but often it processes the wrong information and it does so with emotional biases if you understand that you can get an edge yada yada but that first part about market efficiency if you're reading an article on CNBC if you're watching you know if you're watching breaking news on CNBC the market is efficient in that sense. It, mm-hmm. Whatever you're reading there has already been factored in. Like, like you're not getting anything new there. Right, right. And, and that is, um, there, there's also sort of a, an arrogance factor. that If you think, if I'm well, I'm a smart guy, I can just learn more than everybody else. I can just study a little bit harder. I can just get a little bit more information. Yeah, I've really actually written work. on
1: on that effect and in a fun way. Um, I, I was a pre med student. I went to medical school for one year, and there's this kind of no, saying in in, uh, in trading that you know doctors and engineers are make for the worst investors, and that's no offense to anyone personally. But uh, you know, doctors uh, have uh, basically learned that if you spend the time, if you put in the hours, if you read all the books, if you gain mastery of the of the content, uh, that you can succeed at a high level, and that works for medicine. It also works for engineering. Uh, where there are physical laws that govern, you know, gravity and force and mass. But that's the kind of doctor I want. I want the
0: doctor who actually does the time. (laughs)
1: And and you do want that uh, as far as going to a medical provider. But um, then then often those types of people think, all right, well, I've mastered this. Let me go master the markets. And the the markets are a whole different beast. You keep referring to the market. And uh, this is something that people refer to all the time. The market, the market does this. The market is efficient. The market is nothing other than a large collection of people uh, making decisions, and so that's really why um, you know the, the efficient market hypothesis was predicated on this idea that of the rational man—that every man and woman who interacts with the market, that makes a decision to buy, makes a decision decision to sell, or makes a decision to stay out of the market—is being one hundred percent rational, and um, that's. Good in theory, but in practice, it, it doesn't it doesn't happen. We all have cognitive biases. Uh, we all have incomplete ability to process data and information, and to understand um, you know relationships and inferences. So um, our our lack of ability to be 100 percent accurate means that we don't always make rational decisions. Now that, that doesn't mean we're purely irrational. That we just go in and uh, you know play
0: around. Uh, a lot of people decisions. Well, no, if thoughtful we were decisions. purely irrational all the time, you could just always bet against us. Exactly. It doesn't work like that either. <laughs>
1: yes. And if we were also that's a great point. And if we are also irrational in different ways, if I if my irrationalities were different than your irrationalities, then they would probably cancel out. And the net effect on prices and financial markets would be nil. Uh, but the fact is, we actually are irrational in predictable ways. You and I make similar uh, types of mistakes and and cognitive have cognitive biases that are similar, and they uh, tend to force us to do the same types of things in moments of stress uh, of markets.
0: So, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, Mike's second, uh, his second bias he identifies was herding behavior, hmm. and this is you see this not just in the financial markets. You just you see it in uh, fashion trends. You see it in music. You see it everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, something, you know, a, a trend maker somewhere, um, you know, start something and then everyone follows them. Uh, herding behavior is very natural in humans. I think it probably goes back to our caveman ancestors that figured out that there is strength in numbers. It's a lot easier for, you know, 10 or 15 of us to go hunt a woolly mammoth than for one guy to go at it alone. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's hardwired into us to kind of seek validation from each other, to seek, and kind of help and validation from each other could be a disaster if done wrong in the stock market though.
1: Yeah, and you hit the nail on the head. I mean, you took my words. Uh, it's There's an evolutionary basis for that. And it's not only that it's easier for 15 cavemen to hunt a woolly mammoth, it's actually almost the inverse of that. If you are the one being hunted, you want to be in a group of 15, because you might, uh, you might be able to kind of uh, get in the middle of that pack and somebody on the outside of the pack gets uh, picked off. And if you decide to leave the pack and say, you know what, I can do this on my own, you're definitely going to get picked off. Um, so that is the evolutionary basis for that. And um, and yeah, you see that in fashion trends, you see that in finance, you see, uh, you know, FOMO, the, the, you know, acronym of the decade, so to speak, fear of missing out, that's precisely hurting, you know, there's a saying that, you know, people don't uh, fear risking a certain amount of loss or drawdown in their portfolio, they fear um, trailing their peers, so if their neighbor, yep. their, their brother-in-law, um, you know, just got a new car because he got in on a GameStop trade or something like that. That's, that's more of an emotional um, risk and emotional pain than simply having a 10% drawdown in a portfolio that you otherwise uh, believe in. So you even see that in the, and that's the other thing is I don't want to pick on retail or novice investors. Uh, You absolutely see the same biases in financial professionals, folks that run. It may be worse in financial professionals. It may be even worse because there's this thing called career risk, right? And so, you know, everybody, uh, if if your fund uh, is meant to track a certain benchmark, um, there's what's called tracking error. And if you make too many active bets, I mean, if you deviate from the uh, holdings in that benchmark too much, if either by sheer bad luck in the short term or by, uh, you know, poor decisions, you trail that index uh, by a meaningful amount, then all of your your fund investors are going to fire you. You may lose your job if it's with a big fund company. So, you know anybody in the financial uh, world like like that is falls victim to the same exact biases, including herding.
0: You know, it's funny. I, I have some friends that are uh, that are they're short sellers. Like they're dedicated short sellers. That's mm-hmm. what they do. I'm also convinced, I don't mean this in any insulting way, I I think there's something a little bit wrong with them. They're they're not quite normal (laughs) (laughs) because when you're you're a short seller, you're always going against the herd. You're always in a position where when you win, all of your friends are losing. Mm -hmm. When you lose, all your friends are winning. It really kind of, you almost have to be kind of a mild sociopath to uh, to have that level of uh, sort of. You know, independence of of thought. So you do. You're anyway, from a different
1: cloth, and and that's a good point as far as contrarianism and and the, this hurting bias. Basically, the the easiest, the simplest way to think about it is that the hurting bias causes prices to move. Uh, past their fair, fair value with a lot more volatility than you would expect by other models. So that can mean either a stock or a market can rally far past its, you know, above its um, fair value or uh, in a period of panic and despondency, um, sellers can force prices down way, well below their fair, fair value. And you know, when we talk about biases, a lot of people think it's a, a negative thing that we have these things and uh, we have to think about them. But there, it's actually the opportunity in the market. There would be no way to beat the market um, if you if there weren't for these cognitive
0: biases and these uh, these mental glitches, so to speak. But uh, back to the hurting. I mean, if, well, you know, if- these biases these biases create anomalies, and we'll get to that here in a minute. But that's you know, anomalies are the world that Adam Odell lives in. Right.
1: I mean, that's that's my bread and butter is, is basically learning uh, the types of predictable behaviors that investors will make in stocks that are not irrational, but suboptimal and then trading against those. And that's really I mean, you can either be a contrarian. Uh, you can find a stock that's been bid up to the sky and for no good reason. And you can be a contrarian short seller in that situation or you can be a contrarian value investor. If you find a stock that everybody's dumped over the past three years and nobody wants to hold, but you see the business is worth a lot more. Um, you can also. You don't have to be a contrarian to uh, to make money off of
0: these biases. You can be a momentum investor as well. So you know stocks that get bit up past fair value. Well, momentum would be understanding herding, understanding what's going on there, and knowingly jumping into the herd to sure. ride it higher. You have to have rules. You have to know when to get out, of course. You don't want to be the last man standing, but uh, you do, or last man standing, the last guy holding the bag. I think I'm mixing my metaphors here, but yeah, something about musical chairs. I know where you're going with this. You don't want to you, know, you don't want to be standing with the last uh, chair is taken. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. So yeah, momentum investing is an idea of you 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 see hurting, you witness it, you understand it, and you participate in it anyway because right. you're you're playing that game. Yeah, that was Soros's game. He
1: said, you know, if he sees a bubble, he jumps in. And you just have to know when to get out, and and really have to use a system. I mean, that's that's the thing is like it's it's one thing to make discretionary decisions about your investments and think that you can know when to get out, um, but really most of the time you you won't. Uh, it'll catch you off guard the turn and the trend, and uh, that's really why for as long as I've been investing uh, minus a year probably in the very beginning. I've been a systematic uh, investor, and that's why you might want to call me a robot. But the uh, you know, fact is, I don't trust myself. Some mornings I wake up in a good mood. Some mornings I wake up grumpy. You know, I don't trust myself and my mood from day to day to make uh, good decisions every single day. So I build systems that are based on factors and anomalies that have been proven across markets, across time. And then I implement those models with discipline, and I sleep better at night and have better results
0: you have rules and those rules are based on experience. They're based on probabilities and that's you rinse and repeat and over time you get it right. Like that's like, that's, that, that's the secret there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's really, I mean, I built um, a whole model that we use uh, in my flagship newsletter, green zone fortunes, Uh, it's called the green zone power rating system i'm sure anybody watching this has has heard about it at least but it's based on uh six factors three of which are based on the price action of the stock so is the stock behaving nicely or is it or not and then three of the factors are based on the company's operating uh fundamentals uh so the price-based ones are momentum size uh, the market cap of the company basically and volatility the volatility of the stock And the three fundamental ones are value, quality, and growth. So it kind of takes a composite look at not only the stock that you are buying when you buy a stock, but also the underlying company behind it. And it looks at six factors that have been proven both in the academic research as well as practitioner results. There are a number of funds that run this type of strategy in different forms. And uh, when you combine it, we're really looking for well-rounded stocks that are, you know, cheaply priced but growing, uh, that are have good momentum, but uh, that are smaller companies because smaller companies over time tend to outperform large companies. Um, so that's really what we do there.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's. I'm glad you mentioned that. I was going to ask you about that here. The, it, I you mentioned, you know, academic studies. I remember uh, back in grad school and even back in CFA study, one of the very first papers we that every finance student has to study is the 1992 paper by Fama and French, their three-factor model. Now, some background on that. Fama and French were two of the biggest proponents of the efficient market hypothesis. They were part of that establishment. They believed in the rational man and the rational market. And then experience slapped them in the face and they realized, well, hold on now, the real world doesn't seem to be uh, following our model here. What's going on? And so then they started to look for anomalies. They started looking for explanations as to why their model wasn't quite working as it should in the real world. And their first attempt at that identified value and size as two factors apart from just the market itself that that impact portfolio returns what they found mm-hmm. is yes you can be systematic you can systematically look for stocks that are undervalued they use the price to book ratio you can i know your own research uses a value composite that uses Various slices of price to earnings, price to book, price to sales. Da, 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 da. You have like a whole portfolio of value statistics that you incorporate into a composite. Yours is mm-hmm. much more sophisticated than theirs. But theirs was yeah, that that first slice of let's let's try this right. Let let's see if it works, and it did. It, it added value. They also used their their size factor, and and this one they had a harder time explaining, but they they hypothesized that. Perhaps because smaller companies can't be bought by the big boys on Wall Street, um, they're just under-researched, and therefore, there is value in, in looking for smaller cap companies. Uh, there was also the, the idea that, that there may be stale price. They had a whole list of theories as to you know, why it worked. But the mm-hmm. fact is, it does, you know, going for smaller companies um, does over time tend to outperform as well. And so that paper, that was sort of the the foundation of uh, kind of quant investing as we know it today. Uh, you, uh, would you argue that your your own six-factor model is sort of a, an evolution of that? Well, absolutely. I mean, I stand on the shoulders of
1: giants, so to speak, uh, because yeah, I mean, every single one of the factors. Uh, well, and I, I can't say every single one. There's this. There's been this issue in recent years where, when computing power has increased and the availability of data has increased, um, and there's been a pressure for academic researchers to publish papers discovering a new anomaly or factor. Um, lo and behold, dozens, if not hundreds of factors have been discovered. And Cliff Assens wrote a paper, I think it was him that wrote it called the factor zoo, basically just saying that, you know, if you could run, uh, you know, regressions and back tests on infinite amount of data over and over, you are statistically likely to come up
0: with factors that look like that have, you know, high, uh, you know, T scores, um, T test scores, but But that kind of comes back to the old Joke that if you have an infinite number of monkeys, you know, banging away on an infinite number of typewriters, eventually they're going to work out all of the works of William Shakespeare. Shakespeare, absolutely. Um, you, you can you can definitely find statistical noise,
1: right? And that's what that's what our you know we try to you know warn our investors against is that you know not every new factor is worthy of being included in your portfolio because it may be um, just kind of spurious. It may not actually be real in the data. Um, you know, there's back testing. What, what could you make the back test look like? It works in the back in the in the history, but then there's forward testing and real world analysis and real world results. and that's what um, investors actually care about. So I've uh, limited my model to the factors that have been uh, this stood the test of time. So you, you nailed two of them size and value. Those were the first two that fama and French um, you know discovered uh, above market beta. And that was really the first time anyone was able to say, because before that, they they figured the market market beta described all of the stock returns. They basically said there's no way to predict idiosyncratically which stock will underperform or outperform the market. And since there's no way to predict that, your returns are based on how much market beta you're taking. Like, are you are you just with the market? Are you with the market with leverage? Um, and so that's really all they cared about. But then they realized, oh, wow, buying companies that are cheaply valued can actually outperform the market buying smaller companies can actually outperform the market so th- those were the first two uh and then it was uh jagadish and titman in the 90s that came out with a seminal momentum paper that realized that like look this sounds silly but if you just sort stocks based on their past 12 month returns and you hold the ones that have been outperforming that outperformance tends to continue at least for a few more months uh, anywhere from one to 12 more months um, so you can actually earn a premium by doing that. And that's because of the herding behavior. You know, one point here is that um, some of these factors work for behavioral reasons because, um, you know, humans are making these, uh, in you know, not fully rational decisions. Uh, because they're biases and some of these factors work because they are risk based, meaning that you are taking on a bit more risk to invest in smaller cap companies, often, a small cap company may not have the depth of management, they may not, they may only have one or two product lines, where a larger company may have 12 product lines. Um, They may not be able to access capital markets as efficiently, so they may pay more for debt or not be able to raise as much equity. So there are some reasons why, um, in theory, you should earn uh, an above-market premium in a smaller company because, um, all things being equal, you tend to take a bit more risk in those types of companies. But if you can diversify that risk away by investing in a number of different companies, a number of different factors over different time frames and you can earn that premium and through diversification bring your overall portfolio level of risk uh, down to an acceptable level. Yeah,
0: you know, it's funny. it's one of the things I really like about your model is because the factors are weighted equally, you can build a highly rated portfolio, diversified across several stocks that are rated highly for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And ideally, a stocks can be rated highly on all six factors, but there's generally going to be some factors that are rated a little bit higher than others for a given right. stock. So you can diversify by having several highly rated momentum stocks, several highly rated value stocks, highly rated growth mm-hmm. stocks, etc. You can really build it out like that. That's a very nice, versatile aspect.
1: And not only that, occasionally you do find one stock that embodies um, several of the factors that you think would be uh, counter counter to each other. So a lot of people think it's either I'm either a momentum investor, I buy things that have been soaring recently and that everybody's talking about on the news, or I buy value stocks that nobody knows about, that nobody cares about, when in fact some of the best stocks are stocks that are trading at a cheap price, they're value stocks, but something has happened in their business. There's some inflection point where the early investors have caught onto that, started buying the stock at a discount. Maybe the discount is closed from minus 40% to minus 35%. But if you can buy in while that stock has gained some momentum, regained an uptrend and still cheaply valued, then you can get into both a momentum and a value stock. And look, that doesn't mean that the company's uh, profits aren't growing as well, so you can really try to find some stocks that are well-rounded, or to your point, you can find a really, really cheap value stock and pair that with a really, really growthy stock that maybe is fairly priced but has um, you know double or triple-digit earnings per share growth. So,
0: very true, very true. Let's uh, let's go backwards for a second and and touch on on Mike's uh, third point. Uh, this is a really good one to me because this is one where your ego can really get you. And it's anchoring, anchoring and adjustment. This is the bias we have to where we we make a point, whether it's I like whatever, make up a stock, I like Microsoft stock or I think the market's going to go up by this percentage or whatever. just pick your pick your hypothesis, mm-hmm. you make it. and then rather than adjust, rather than just say, okay, like my, I was wrong, you know, things didn't go that way. I'm just going to start over with a new hypothesis. I'm just going to scrap that one. Take all available information right now and come up with a new hypothesis. Instead, you stay anchored to something that's clearly not working. Mm-hmm. You try to uh, maybe tweak it around the edges, just sort of tweak your your you know it's, you're still anchored to it, but mm-hmm. you just make very slight changes to it. When what you really should do is just be done with it and move on. Now, this to me, well, it's it's a couple things. One your ego will kill you in this business. If if you cannot contain your ego, if you can't get rid of your ego, mm-hmm. then you, you're dead. Like, like you, you will lose money and, and you will not make it as an investor. Mm-hmm. So that kind of comes back to your rules-based investing where the best way to conquer your ego, the best way to keep your ego in check, to keep that thing in a box locked away is to simply have rules that you aren't allowed to second guess. And that that comes down to what you do. A lot of your 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 investing is very algorithmic, very rules based. You get into a trade based on your on the criteria. If things change, you're out. If mm-hmm. it doesn't go right, you're out. You come up with a new hypothesis. You you start over. Uh, that's that's very that that's hard. Like the, like not very many investors ever master that. Um, the ones that do tend to stick around longer. The ones that do tend to to, to be a lot more successful.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you think about what, um, you know, data-driven investment strategies are trying to do, um, whether you call them AI or machine learning or just more traditional uh, data-driven strategies, um, they're trying to take what's called a Bayesian approach, where every new data point of, um, you know, data that comes in is being incorporated to the model and being incorporated to the opinion that the model had one second before that data point came in, and you're constantly updating that. And that's really probably the the image that the uh, rational man theorist had in mind when they they thought about people buying and selling stocks. But if you talk to anybody over the age of 80 or 90 uh, and and have them tell you stories, they kind of show the anchoring bias because they will often talk about a decade uh, in their past that they are very fond of or that was most impactful for them. And they are kind of stuck on that decade. And they believe that the world um, should still operate that way or does still operate that way. And what they haven't done is they haven't updated their references or they haven't updated their view of the world based on what's been happening in a more recent time. And that's exactly what happens in the market. Um, the example my car used was GameStop. And you know it's hard to pick a target for a stock when it's trading at its highs. But once it's set a high of, let's say, $120 and then falling back, well, suddenly you see that high as the anchor, and you think, well, there's no reason why the stock can't go back to 120. If I can buy it at 60, then I've got a 60% discount. When the fact of the matter is the business might be worth $10 a share. Um, So, and it may never get back to $120. The other way that the anchoring biases messes people up is this idea of, it's it's kind of related to the disposition effect where you don't want to sell a losing position and it goes back to the ego idea. So let's say you you buy a stock and you feel really good about it. You're confident in it. Uh, you think that you've made a really good uh, find and suddenly that stock is down 10%. And you don't want to take the emotional or the ego hit of selling that stock and thinking, oh, I, I made a bad decision, even if it's only a 10% loss. But so what because you do it, is you it's think, an
0: admission that you were wrong.
1: Exactly. So yeah. it's more of a psychological loss than an economic one. Um, and so what most people do is they'll say, OK, well, maybe this wasn't as good as I thought. But what I'll do is I'll wait till it gets back up to my break even price, my entry price, and then I'll sell. It'll be a wash. We can all pretend it didn't happen. And then lo and behold, that 10 percent loss turns into a 15, 20 percent loss and then a 30 percent loss. And then usually people end up selling. Uh, toward the bottom, and that's really why um, you know that these prices can get out of line with fair value is that um, you know people don't want to follow a rules based system. Um, we use trade stops in my portfolio, so that's a that's a volatility adjusted um, stop program where based on the volatility of the stock, you choose where you're going to get out of the stock if it goes against you, and you try to maintain this discipline to that because um, there's so many factors that can make a stock or a business uh, deteriorate on you that you have to have some measure of risk management or else you know it risks taking the whole portfolio down with it.
0: You have to have those rules and you have to have them on before the trade starts. Otherwise, it becomes a very messy mental game and one that very few people ever win. Absolutely. But yeah. I, I'm glad you mentioned that trade stops because our, our friends over at trade stops have actually developed something uh, I, I like. now you, you mentioned their volatility based uh, stop loss is that something I've personally used for for years? I think that's fantastic. They've actually put together uh, an AI model that looks to predict uh, market moves as much as 30 days in the future. And of course this is not you know voodoo, this is not you know something like they're not just divining market moves because that doesn't work. but what they are looking at, is they are crunching the data. They're looking at what factors are working now, because different stock factors are more uh, different stock factors tend to be in vogue at any given time. Mm-hmm. And so, if their models tell you, look, right now we we see this, you know, the, the data supporting this. Value is in or whatever, you know, small caps are in. You know, pick picture poison or some combination of value, momentum, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Like this is the combination that's working right now. And that that's how AI can be used in, in a model like this. Uh, they call their model Annie, like like the, the woman's name, although they spell it uh, A-N-E. You know, you gotta gotta make it sound like a like a robot, right? It's gotta it's gotta, yeah. gotta sound futuristic, but give it uh, a name. <laughs> It's a good name, right? But anyway, um, if if you like what we've with what we've discussed today, you like this idea of quantitative investing, factor investing, rules based investing, you know, using data, letting the data guide your decision, taking your emotions out of the equation then this is something you should check out for sure. We'll put a link below. I strongly recommend you give it a look. Well, Adam, we are out of time. Thanks for thanks for joining us. And uh, I, I will joke once more about the robot thing. Uh, you may need to go plug in or uh, you know re- restart or uh, whatever it is a good quantitative trader does.
1: Absolutely, I'll, I'll reboot and come back uh, ready to go. So hey, it was good to talk with you, Charles. Hope you're doing well and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Have a good one.